our friends and families visiting. Uh, we are a younger church. We started a little bit uh, over a year and a half ago. We happen to be about half of us uh, married and the other half single. I feel like our singles population went home to be with mom and dad just to thank them for paying their rent and all that stuff. And so, but so glad to have uh, you here. Uh, if you're a guest today, uh, if you don't mind just letting us know that you're here, just fill out this card um, and let, let us know that you're here. And Mike or I will just send you an email thanking you for coming today. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love for you to continue to come back to Trinity Life and investigate what kind of church we are. Uh, as a matter of fact, after our service today, we have uh, a place where if you're new to Trinity Life, you can join and, and learn more. And so, this is their second week into our builder's orientation. So, don't forget about that at 1230 in room 309. So, uh, so glad that you guys are here again. Um, I was in the Middle East uh, for uh, the last couple of days. I want to show a picture. I won't say a whole lot about it, but here's a picture uh, of me in Doha, which is uh, in the country of Qatar. And uh, it's a group of 20 pastors from North America and imams uh, from Pakistan. And we were just in a group meeting uh, talking about how do we provide religious freedom uh, for uh, the religious minority in Pakistan. It was a fantastic time. Uh, and so really, I'd love to share more. I just don't have a lot of time. But we've been praying as a church, where do we go in the world to make a difference? Where do we go in the world in the name of Jesus to make a difference? Just continue to pray for training life as we ask the question, God, where are you calling us to? And as I say that, I'm looking at Molly right here, who um, uh, your, your episode debuted today, right? This morning. Molly works for Context TV. Uh, do you mind me sharing this? Okay, okay. And uh, Molly spent a week in Iraq uh, documenting uh, what is, what's happening specifically to those families who fled Iraq into Jordan. Is that correct? They're fleeing from ISIS into it, right? And so, um, fantastic time. We've been praying for Molly. She came just before she left. And so, um, can you come up here and give a 10 second, like, just plug for your episode? Because I really want people to watch it. Uh, we saw the trailer of it uh, this past Friday, and I just feel like it's something that we need to, to know and understand as, as a global Christian. So, yeah, so our show is uh, Christian Current Affairs Show, and uh, we air on global across the country on different uh, networks in the US. And we usually just do like in studio current affairs, interviewing people from all over, all different backgrounds, doesn't necessarily have to be Christian, but we feel like Christ's heart can shine through it. And we recently had the opportunity to go over to Iraq to do stories on displaced people that are fleeing ISIS, and so that's where we went to air this morning, 9 30 a.m. across Canada and Global, and I guess it'll hit the other networks that last as it goes. And uh, yeah, you can find it online, Contest will want to do it, so that's our first big one. And, and yeah, just the heart behind it was to, to find the humanity behind all the stories. You know, we hear about ISIS, we hear about what ISIS is doing to people, but we don't necessarily meet those people. And so we had a chance to sit down, and, and these Iraqis are just so honored that they would share their struggles and their stories with us. It's very, very powerful stuff. And uh, my hope is that, you know, Canadians see it, Americans see it, and there's an awareness that's brought back up, and that we won't forget about these people. And then our second part, we went to Jordan as well to do stories on Syrian refugees, and specifically the next generation of young people, lost scholars, people that are sitting around doing nothing two, three, four, five years later. So it's a huge part of my heart to do international stories. Guys, open that up. And uh, yeah, so that's our world in the fall. But if you guys look up Context with Want to Do It, you'll find uh, the show should be out online now. Cool. Thanks, and thanks for praying for me. Yeah, absolutely. Man, we've been dreaming, saying, God, what if, what if you sent Trinity Life to the Muslim world? Oh, I, just, I, I know not everybody understands that, but we've been dreaming and praying that. And so uh, seeing God, God begin to open up doors is fantastic. Um, I also want to show another picture real quick. We've got five interns coming up right now, driving from Charlotte today, who are going to be with us um, this, uh, for the next seven weeks serving Trinity Life, serving Toronto. And so we want to pray for them. Uh, they'll be here next week and we'll introduce them as well. But I want to lead us in a couple of minutes of prayer. Uh, I think we would be the only church not to talk about, um, if, if I didn't uh, right now, uh, what happened in Charleston, South Carolina this week with Emmanuel AME uh, Church. <clears throat> so we, uh, you've probably heard and read and saw the news that Dylan Wilford, young man of 21, uh, came into a prayer gathering Wednesday night um, as the congregation was gathering, and he uh, killed nine people. And so, you know, the, spin will talk, the, the press will talk about it in whatever way it wants to talk about it. But our job right now is to mourn with those who mourn and to, to unite in prayer and unite in our hearts. And so before we move forward in our service, before we continue on into God's word, we give 30 seconds and just pray in our minds and our hearts for the survivors of this event, for the church, and for Pastor Clement Pickney, his family. He was also murdered in this event as he continued to mourn and heal through this process. Father, we uh, celebrate today you. We celebrate our families, our lives. We celebrate those who, because of whatever reason, Lord, uh, today are not celebrating and worshiping the nine lives that were lost in Charleston. And God, we pray for their families for healing. We pray for those who come around them and mourn with them. Uh, Lord, as I read their act of forgiveness and grace this week, the power of the gospel flowing through that congregation, through the headlines of CNN, Lord, it just reminded me what a great family we're a part of. So, Lord, I pray for mercy for Dylan Roof and his family. Lord, I pray for grace, and I pray, God, that as you uh, arrange for justice, that, Lord, you would do it in a way that would bring redemption uh, in his life. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can unite as a church uh, to pray for the world around us. We're not a church just in Jerusalem, but we're in Judah, Samaria, and all three ends of the earth. Lord, that's what you've called us to be. And so we pray for our American churches uh, this morning that are morning. We pray all this through Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, again, happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room and all, also all the spiritual dads. Uh, my father-in-law passed away uh, four years ago, so this is also a chance for us to think about those dads who are no longer with us. And if I had to admit, like I think about my own fatherhood, um, I'm probably not the most romantic guy. Uh, that you know, some of you guys can probably up me on the romance department, but yeah, Linda has seen her fair share of gifts and romance. But there's something about like I, my dad never told me how to woo my wife after we got married. We had some conversation of how to like talk to a girl before we got married, but we never really had those kind of heart to hearts. Uh, and so I really didn't know how to keep my wife. And so I, it was uh, nothing that we really had conversations about. But I remember one morning, it was on Mother's Day, and it was early Sunday morning. My dad showed me something about how to woo and love your wife and her family after you're married. And uh, I should take note again that I said he showed me something and not just told me something. So my dad, that week, he was up to something. It was kind of weird. Yeah. Like I, my dad never goes to the mall. As a matter of fact, I think in Detroit, no Asian immigrant male that is above 50 years old goes to the mall to fight it out with teenagers. Okay? But he did that week. And so he went on a scavenger hunt to find the perfect gift for his girl. And so he found her a golden bracelet. And so it was Mother's Day morning. He woke my younger brother, David, and I up. And so my mom was still just uh, quietly asleep. It was about 6 in the morning. And he told us, come, come, come to the bedside. And as she was sleeping, I, I just unstartled, he switched the bracelet onto her hand, onto her wrist. And he says to her, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> and so I look at my dad, and he's smiling, uh, he's smiling very shyly. And I look at my mom, she wakes up, and she's even more shy with her smile. I think she was embarrassed by the whole thing. And that moment, I take note. I take note of something. I, I said to myself, huh, this is how you do it. This is how you keep a wife. This is how you stay married. Uh, this is how you teach your sons how to do it. This is how you become a father. This is how you become a husband. Oh, okay. You see, much of what I learned from my dad was caught more than it was taught. And much about our Christian faith is the same way. Uh, transferring the faith to the next generation is done in the same way. It's important that we teach, we preach, we guide people, but ultimately, you do faith for the next generation to see. You do love. You do love. You do it in order for people to understand it. And fortunately and unfortunately, what happens is that people actually copy your actions more than they copy your instructions. For the parents in the room, this is true. I love it and hate it when my kids act like me. <laughs> I love it when they act out the good things. I hate it when they act out the bad things. But here's the Father's Day message for you dads and future dads and spiritual dads, those who have influence. Your life and your actions tell the ones that you influence how to love God more than any other sermon could ever do. Your life and your actions, they tell people how to love God more than a sermon that I could ever preach or any other pastor could preach. Your life could be the greatest sermon your children ever hear. So this is true, and dads, this is our prayer for you. If you are looking for a church and if you uh, have been looking for guys to do this kind of life with, we just say, let's do it together at Trinity Life. None of us have it figured out, but we also uh, spur each other on, and for the, I don't know, maybe the seven or eight of us dads who are a part of Trinity Life, let's, let's do it together. Let's work on it together. For those of us who don't have children, as Mike was saying earlier, you can be a spiritual father to many, many people in the kingdom of God, and it's something that we also want to come alongside of you. We've been talking about uh, the book of James, Faith That Works, and today we come to the most famous passage in all of James. And he actually talks about what I just said, that faith actually has a working component, that it actually does something. This is actually one of the most famous passages in all of James. It's also the one that's highly debated uh, for the reason that James actually makes a statement that says that we are justified, we are saved through works. And at first glance, it seems to contradict a lot of what the other passages in the Bible say, especially the Apostle Paul, which says that we're only saved by faith alone. And so there seems to be a contradiction in the Bible. And so there's actually a commentary that I read, there's actually a, 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 a modern translation of the New Testament called The Voice. And in it, the editors, they write this, which I think is brilliant. This is what they say about what seems to be the, uh, the uh, alleged contradiction between James saying justified by works and Paul saying, no, justified by faith. And they say, well, Paul describes the root. He describes the root of salvation. A person is saved by God's grace, received through faith. But James ex explaining the fruit of salvation. Saving faith is a faith that works. You see the difference there? The Apostle Paul talking about the root of salvation, what gets us saved. James, all throughout the book of James, he talks about what is the fruit of our salvation that shows people, that, that vindicates to other people that, yes, we indeed are saved people. And that is where the contradiction no longer exists. It disappears, and the two we'll see later uh, work in harmony. So there are two points from the passage this morning. Uh, the first point is this. Um, saving faith serves the local church. Saving faith serves the local church. And secondly is demonic faith serves the ego. And you're eager for me to get to the second point. Demonic faith serves the ego. First point, saving faith serves the local church. Uh, one of the most common objections to Christianity is this, that I can't believe the Bible because the Christians that, are, that I know don't practice what they preach. So why should I believe? You ever heard that one before? And all the Christians I know are, are hypocritical, so why would I believe what they believe? And, you know, to a certain degree, that person's half right. And their experience tells them that belief is false if the people who say they believe it uh, aren't practicing it. Our human instinct tells us to think this way, that we discredit other people when they don't live what they say they believe uh, with integrity. This isn't unique to Christianity. This is true about anything. Uh, for instance, imagine someone believes that every human person is good. It's just our circumstances um, or misguidance that leads to evil. All right? A lot of people in our city believe that. Right? Inevitably, the person who says they believe that 
Uh, if, and everybody, they'll do something to contradict that. So they'll be driving on the BVP, it's jam packed, somebody cuts them off, and they turn around and they say, Oh, you low down, dirty, fill in the blank with your Canadian expletive. Right? <laughs> okay. And so the, not every is evil, right? I mean, the goodness of man, what happened to that, right? So inevitably, all of us, we do this, we're all the same. Right? Nobody here is, uh, you know, outside of this group. But the funny thing is this, as you read, as Minsu was reading the book of uh, this passage in James, the funny thing is this, that uh, if you or someone has ever made this accusation, James is actually saying, yeah, I, I half agree with you. He actually spends this passage calling out the hypocrites in the church. But the other half is this, he doesn't do it to invalidate what they believe, he does it to inspire them in their faith. So he doesn't do it to just invalidate them, he does it because he wants them to grow in their faith. And so we'll see this later on as we move on. But first, let's ask the question, what is Christian work? Because that's what James says, that if someone says he has faith but does not have works, uh, how can that faith save him? What does he mean by works? And it's important here because uh, in this passage, we actually find a link between faith that saves and what we would call good works. What is the link between the two? Um, to better understand the connection between the two, uh, consider this definition of Christian works. All right, I think it's going to be up here. Christian work, the things that Christians do, are actions motivated by faith in Christ, empowered by the grace of God. Motivated by faith empowered by God's grace. Note the word grace. Grace isn't passive. Grace is active. Grace is a power. Grace is the infusion of God's work into our situation. Grace is God at work. The kind of work that James is talking about here is God's grace, God's grace extended to you, and then you receive it by faith, and the grace flows through you like a power, and the end result is works that splash onto other people. Did I paint a picture there? I was trying to in my head. Okay. So grace comes down, faith receives it, grace flows through us, and it goes out onto other people as good works. That's Christian works, all right? It's the overflow of God's grace on us. Grace is power. Grace makes us alive. And when you understand that grace is actually fuel, you'll see that faith and works are dependent on each other. Grace makes that all that stuff come together. That's why when Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, when he writes this, it's completely in harmony with what James says. Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you see, all three things are there, right? So for by, what does it say? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's all there. There's no contradiction, right? God's grace, we receive it in faith, and it flows out. The results is works. Right. Here's how Dallas Willard says it in his book, The Great Omission. It's a book about Christian action. Dallas Willard says this, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not have to do with the forgiveness of sins alone. So Willard is saying grace is power, grace is action. Some of us, we come to church thinking that by coming to church, we have done something good to earn God's favor. That's not grace. Grace is this, that God loves you. That he's been seeking you out. There isn't anything you can do to make him love you more, love you less. And because that grace is extended to you, you respond out of that because you want to gather with God the Father, you want to gather with your church family. So James goes on, he, he makes a point, he says that the proof of saving faith is first found in loving the church. Right, so to further his point, James says that faith without action is like patronizing fellow church members who aren't well clothed and who don't have daily meals. It's like saying to you, hey, God bless your brother and sister, I hope this situation works out, and me and my suit, I walk out and I go to brunch. And James is saying, no, if you're saved, you would never patronize your brothers and sisters in that way. You would never turn them away. And this comes off the passage where Mike preached last week and says, we shouldn't show favoritism. This is a random uh, metaphor that uh, James is using, a random illustration. He's saying, first and foremost, if you're saved, you've got to love your family. It doesn't mean you like them, but you've got to love them. This is the first fruit of being saved. Complete. This is basic Christianity 101 James is teaching here. Because this is what Jesus says in John 13, 34. Jesus is teaching Christianity 101 to his disciples. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just the same way that I loved you, with action. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, when Jesus' true disciples were saved and he was teaching them, he said, the first thing is this. He didn't say, go all the way to Rome and preach the gospel. Jesus actually takes off his clothes. He's standing in front of 12 men in his underwear because he's humbled himself as a servant. And he goes around and he begins to wash their feet. And John says this in John 13, that this is the extent in which Jesus was showing his love for them. Another translation says that he showed his love to the end of his ability, washing his disciples' feet. Christian work means that we are loving and serving one another in the church. I don't, I don't want to, it, you ever visit a relative's family that you really didn't want to be there because they, they were fighting all the time, right? Nobody wants to come to your church if you're fighting all the time. Right. Nobody wants to come to church if you're secretly harboring, hitting your, you know, your deacon, your pastor, you know, the, whoever, lady doing the announcements, uh, no offense to Michelle. Uh, <laughs> I'm to be in a place where you're like, it's kind of weird, dude. like urban Amish people, but I'm give some time. 
See, James is saying here is that stop patronizing one another. Just say, oh, I'll pray for you. And treating people less than you because you're, you're too busy. When you patronize people, in the same way he's saying you're actually patronizing God. Right? And he says, what good is that? What, what, what good action comes from just saying, hey, I'll pray for you, brother, and then you have nothing to show for it. Right? Faith without works is not rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in, I'm too busy to get involved, so I'll just say something nice to you. It's rooted in self. Someone transformed by the gospel has a heart full of gratitude, a deep understanding of God's sacrifice. God gave it all to me. I don't lack anything. So when I see need around me, even if I need to sacrifice, it's no big deal. I pull out my wallet. I don't mind helping you to get by this month. I don't mind helping you to get a car you really need. I don't, I don't mind helping you move. God's giving me everything. Right? Uh, we, don't do this for the, we don't do this for the warm and fuzzies. Like, we don't do this just to make each other feel good and, and all that stuff. But inevitably, somebody feels good in it. The person receiving feels good, or the person giving feels good, or the person outside the community looking at you all do this, looking at it unfold, and they're saying, ah, oh, they're strange people. Can that be real? Do they really love each other that way? Let me stick it out for three months to see. And we said this at Training Life over and over again, that sometimes people belong before they believe. Very few people hear the message on the radio, on the TV, and then seek out a church. Most people come to church for months, years, before they start making sense of all the stuff that we're talking about. Most people belong before they believe. And I'll say this, that if you've been coming to our church or any other church, and you, you struggle with the teaching, and you struggle, but you like the people, let me just encourage you gently. Keep going. Keep plugging in. Give it some time. We're weird, but we're not all super weird. So let me give us two really quick rules for avoiding patronizing each other. When I say patronizing, I mean like we're just kind of pretending that oh, you're really not that important, but let me just say that you're important just to make myself look good, right? And so there are two ways to do that. Number one is to remove, to reduce inauthentic language, all the cliches that we use in conversation, all right? And so next time when somebody comes up to you and says, I'm struggling with making my bills, then instead of saying, hey, I'll pray for you, all right? And you should pray for them and you should say that. But how about saying, okay, how much are you short? Okay. Or hey, uh, you know, I, I really need help moving uh, and I need a car. Okay, let me, let me put a shout out to Facebook to see if anybody responds, all right? How about just saying, okay, what time do I need to be there? Right. Let's remove the language and the cliches that we kind of hide behind, right? I do it all the time. Oh, Daniel, I'm going through all this. This is bad if your pastor's confessing this. <laughs> but I do pray for you, okay? But I realize I don't go the extra step, oftentimes. Be specific. What do you need? What do you, what do you, what do you really need? Like, what, like, tell me. Like, if it's my, in my fridge, I'll give it to you. If it's in my closet, I'll give it to you. If it's in my bank account, I don't have a lot of it, but I'll give it to you. Right? James and Jesus are saying, if you go to church and people can't live this way, beware. I don't know if that's what I want to show to the world. Beware. So secondly is this. Uh, posture yourself as a servant in the church. Serve regularly. Hey, if you're at Training Life, serve regularly. I know you work a 50-hour job, I know, but serve regularly. I was going through our, uh, our need for serving uh, at Training Life, and uh, in Planning Center, which is an online app we use to schedule people to serve on Sunday morning, we have 45 positions open every Sunday to serve. Right? We need that many people to, to do this, right? It didn't seem like we need that, but between the person leading and the setup team, um, you know, and this morning we were fairly thin. There was, I think, 18 of us to do this. And so just put yourself in a posture to serve. And it's not about getting the work done. But, you know, Ryan Reed left us this past week, and good riddance to him. Um, but he, he made a statement uh, this Friday when he left. He was a part of our church almost from the beginning. He went to, he followed some girl in Pennsylvania, whatever, got married. And uh, you guys know Ryan's personality. You know, he, he said, hey, Darren, you're kind of in his voice. And he says, I think this is the first time I felt like church family. And it's really sad that I'm going now. And so Ryan started serving on our, our, our setup team and eventually started doing our worship. But did you know that he, he and, and just serving on our setup team, just coming up 8.30 every morning, hauling out the boxes, you know, again, uh, helping to just kind of get things in and out. But he built a relationship where he moved. Uh, was it yesterday that he moved? Right. I think it's yesterday. But Stephen Wu is getting married next Sunday. Where are you at, Stephen? Stand up. Okay. Stephen Wu is in charge of our setup, and I'm plugging this for him. <laughs> Ryan's going to drive 18 hours next week to be a part of the wedding, and he just moved yesterday. Right? It's not about just getting the job done. There's relationships. Until you posture yourself in a place of serving, you're never going to see the opportunities come by. Church is not a spectator sport. You have to be a part of something in order to understand what are the needs. We can't sit up here and give announcements for all the needs in the church every week. But as you serve, you'll learn, and the opportunities will come. And so I do want to celebrate Emily, who leads our kids' city ministry, because she needs your help. Um, I want to celebrate our hospitality team. They need your help. I want to celebrate Stephen and Bruce with our setup team. We need your help. Our worship team, we need your help. Right? You may have been around for a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Hey, that's, if you got arms, you can fit in. Okay? And so I just want to encourage you. I don't want to belabor this point so much, but just being real practical, faith that works, okay? Faith that works. Is that you have a blue card here, and if you don't mind, if you're not plugged into a, a serving team yet, just think about it throughout the service. And if you're interested, just check the box right here. I'm interested in getting involved. Drop it in our offering basket later, and we'll have somebody contact you. All right. All right. So let me move on because we have five minutes to do this last second point. Uh, secondly, is this demonic faith serves the ego. 
demonic faith, it serves the ego. James says, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. And James is going through this hypothetical debate. Somebody says to him, hey, some people work, some people have faith. Give the faith people a break. Let them listen to their lectures and read their books. And uh, James is saying, show me somebody who was converted by the Holy Spirit, new identity in Christ, life completely changed, and they just sit on their hands. They study the plays, but they don't go in the game. This guy doesn't exist, James is saying. Or show me the guy who is passionate about loving people, who hates evil in the world, but they never take a chance to look inside their own heart. Show me that person. I don't think they exist. And James makes the point that I don't know how to live any other life than faith and works. They have to go together. That's his point. Because I'm the kind of guy, if I have faith, I gotta work. My work is meaningless without faith. And he makes a really uh, uh, strong point here. He says the only person who could ever believe in God but not obey, the only person who would study the plays of God, all the strategies of God, but they study it just to throw the game, to ignore the coach, the only person that would ever do that is a demon. It's Satan. There's a faith that you can believe, believe, trust, 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 but not do anything about it. And it's at this point that some commentators on the book of James say that James is probably referencing back to Jesus' temptation in the desert. Matthew 5, 4, 3 to 6 says, The devil took Jesus to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and their hands will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. If you read all of Psalms 91, which is what Satan is quoting back to Jesus in this moment of temptation, it seems to say this, that whoever trusts in God will be protected by God. Now, even Satan believes the promises of God. But here's the question. For what purpose does he believe the promises of God? Why do you believe the promises of God? For Satan, it was for a selfish gain that he was quoting scripture back to Jesus. If you read the Bible in order to try to justify your situation, if you read it in order for you to wiggle out of responsibility, uh, if you read it so that you can escape responsibility, if you read it so that you can actually uh, compromise your, your lifestyle decisions, James is saying, hey, that's demonic faith. If you need the Bible to justify your actions. You know, imagine me uh, sensing a, a, a threat of authority in my life, and I fear the loss of autonomy, so I reinterpret, I reinterpret standards to suit my own needs. This is very common. Case in point, in polygamous societies. I'm not right on it. I come from one. I've never been married twice. But my uncles have, right? Not, not in North America, in Laos, all right? I know it's not illegal here, so I shouldn't have said that about my uncles, but uh, a lot of polygamous societies will say, look at the Old Testament. They had a lot of wives. They led the nation of Israel. Abraham, David, Solomon. But what you fail to realize is this, that polygamy among the leaders of God's people was disastrous. It never went well for anybody. Ne Give me one example where it never went well. It was never part of God's design. Never part of God's design. The only way that anything positive came out of polygamy was God's grace in the midst of people's bad decisions. It's demonic faith to read the words of God and try to argue technicalities to avoid its authority. It's demonic faith to read the word of God and argue technicalities in order to undermine its authority in your life. This is a big ouch for me. Big ouch! But I feel like I do it all the time. So we get to a point in our life where we say, I can't do this. can't do this. Satan says to Jesus, if you trust God, he will protect you from all harm. Jump. Demonic faith sees God's promise of protection, and then it reinterprets it this way. If I believe in God, I shouldn't suffer. This interpretation, if I believe in God, I shouldn't suffer, it builds the ego, not the kingdom of God. Because eventually it says, God, I trust in you. Why am I not married yet? God, I trust in you. Why don't I have kids yet? Why hasn't the job come yet? Why am I still stuck in this expensive city if I trust in you, God? Right? Builds the ego, not the kingdom of God. James says that all the demons believe in God this way. They still shudder. If you've ever done this before, where you took God's word and you did justify your actions, shudder. Because even the demons do. Fear God, church. I don't think I've ever preached this way before. Fear God, church. Jesus knew the real interpretation of Psalms 91. If I, Jesus, suffer death and humiliation for the world, I will overcome the evil that people daily face. My death and resurrection. If I, if I, if I put away my desires and I take on God's authoritative word into my life, I will achieve victory so strong that it will flow onto other people. That's how Jesus understood Psalms 91. He knew that Satan's interpretation was wrong. That if I trust God, I won't suffer. He knew the better interpretation. I must persevere in obedience so that they will have an example of persevering in obedience. Let me close with this. Um, Jesus had saving faith so that other people would be served by him and not that his ego would be served. He didn't do this to get a crown, although he will get a crown. I want to issue a challenge out to us fathers, us men, uh, spiritual fathers, and I don't want to 
eliminate the one in this morning, but it is kind of our day. <laughs> Submit yourself under God's authority, under his word. If you haven't, you're submitted to somebody else's authority already. It might be your boss, it might be your own desires. There comes a point in your life, and I'm only 35, so I'm still fairly young. I'm almost a millennial. <laughs> but I'm learning with at least 16 years of marriage uh, and 14 years of being a father, which isn't very long. It's half or a quarter of some of you in this room. But I've tried it my way enough times that I'm willing to say humbly, okay, let's, let's come back to this again. Let's, let's try it your way, God. Men, submit yourself to the authority and the word of God, please. Revere his truths. Trust the Bible. It's not popular. I know. It'll cramp your style. I know. You may not get married as fast as you want to. I know. Very few are blessed like me to get married at 19. When you submit yourself under the word of God, your children will see this picture every day. Every day. This is how they look at dad. Ah. When dad messes up, this is how they see dad. Submitted to the word of God. Every day. And the words that you say to them will mean more <laughs> when you live this way. Underneath the word. It has more weight when you say gently to them, son. We gotta work hard. The thing you do it because the Bible commands it. They will learn from you. Uh, my oldest son is only 14 right now. You're lovely, Jess. Best kid I know. <laughs> He's going through the 14 years, uh, you know, the phase that 14 years go. But I do my best with you, son. And I'm not, I'm not bragging, I'm not boasting. But almost every morning, if he wanted to, if he could, he can't right now because he's 14. But if he wanted to wake up at 6.30 in the morning, he'd see me downstairs, going through the Bible, journaling. And you're saying, oh, you're a pastor. That's right. No. I was a software developer for eight years, and I did this. We can do this, guys. We can do it together. This is the kind of faith that works. This is the kind of faith that we're trying to build.